I want to thank Mary. Mary won't remember this, but when I finally came here for the first time, because I dreamed about writing forever, I was scared to death. I really thought, I don't belong here. I'd written two or three short stories that were god-awful. I even knew they were god-awful. They were science fiction. I had no business writing science fiction. I don't know anything about science. But I loved to read it, so I was writing it. And uh, so I came in that front door downstairs in the old Miramar, and there is this gorgeous brunette, which just intimidated me more. <laughs> and she, Mary, was. she introduced herself. She was so nice to me. She said, is this your first time? Like it wasn't written all over me. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I'm so glad you're here. Please tell me how you like it. How can you ever thank somebody like that? And it's, you know, I credit this conference with really being, um, with, with starting my career. Plus, I met my second husband here, and we got married because of the conference, and on and on and on. Anyway, Monty, you have recaptured that, and we are grateful. And I want to thank Grace and everybody else, and I'm, you know, <laughs> we're all, this is old home week, isn't it? Thank you so much. I am so glad to be here. It is wonderful to be here. But at my age, it's great to be anywhere. <laughs> I love looking out here at all of you. I mean, all of these writers, all these mad, crazy, you can't, you know, trying to, it's like herding cats, you know, all these writers. You know, uh, as writers, there is a 10-step program for this. <laughs> you can get over it. <laughs> No, I don't think you really can. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether you have ever experienced this, but it's been true of me that I listen to a lot of my writer friends and they say things to me like, look at the competition. It is so hard to get published in New York now. And we're all saying it to each other. And then we say, look at each other and, then, and say, I think we created this problem because we kept going to conferences and teaching and encouraging talent. And then <laughs> the talent, but you see, that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to help each other come up. And that's one of the things that's been a characteristic of this conference is the open, openness to help one another. But so, so I decided tonight, right up front, to give you the five surefire rules not to succeed at writing. <laughs> In other words, to fail. And I'll bet nobody has passed this on. This is really important stuff, so, so um, take notes. This is how to fail. Number one, if you've never jotted down an idea for a story or a character, for God's sakes, don't start now. Number two, if you've been working on the same book for years, don't finish it. I know, I know, I know. Margaret Mitchell spent 10 years writing Gone with the Wind, and it was a pretty successful book. But just keep telling yourself that you're no Margaret Mitchell. <laughs> Remember, the point of all of this is to fail. Number three, if you get some good advice on your manuscript, ignore it. Instead, take that manuscript around and show it to a whole bunch of people. The more the better, until you get a lot of conflicting responses. <laughs> Sound familiar? 
<laughs> that way, you'll either have to make every single change that's been suggested, or make none of them because you're so confused. Either option is excellent, because the manuscript is sure not to sell, you won't publish, and you can succeed as a failure. <laughs> Number four, I highly recommend that you have such a busy life that you just don't have time to write. After all, you've got a job, a family, a club, or maybe even two clubs, trips you've promised to make, sports that you follow, and lunches, dinners, parties, television, magazine, books, so many, many other wonderful things to fill your life. Keep telling yourself that you do not have time to write, because the truth is, you don't. <laughs> Number five, get rid of your workspace, your computer, and your research altogether. <laughs> Some people actually do this. <laughs> Turn your home office into the hobby room, or the TV room, or Better yet, install plumbing and put in an indoor hot tub. <laughs> Add some of those cute twinkly fairy lights. Power up the barbecue and break out the tofu. This is California after all, and everyone can be a failed writer. <laughs> okay, okay, now it's confession time. I want you to know that I have tried a lot of these options myself. <laughs> uh, and I'm really happy to report that I failed at failing. I don't want you to, I don't want to interfere with your success and turn you into a failure, but neither do I want to interfere with your failure and help you become successful if that's not really what you want. So in the interest of fair play, I'm now going to give you several surefire can't-fail rules to be a successful writer. Number one, examine your attitude. Yeah. <laughs> I had a big epiphany about success and failure many years ago. I was driving home from a job that I hated, that was making me sick, and I had a lot of ideas in my head. I really wanted to write. I didn't have the time. I had a family to raise, I, and my life was just so chaotic. Uh, and I, I just didn't know what to do. Um, I was feeling really overwhelmed, and I was sick and tired of all the problems that came from being what I considered a failure. Now, here's a tip. A failure is an act. It's not a person. You're not a failure. I'm not a failure. But we sometimes do things that fail, or we fail to do things with the result that we've created failure. In any case, I was having all the problems that are associated with failure. That's when I realized I wanted new problems. In fact, I wanted the problems that came with success. I had no idea what those problems would be, but I'd heard published writers complain about them. They'd complain about their editors, their copy editors, their publishers, their publicity, getting New York to send the darn check. Wow. Those problems really appealed to me. <laughs> so here I was, driving along, trying to decide whether having a traffic accident might improve things. <laughs> when it finally penetrated my thick skull that I needed to work to become as successful as a writer so I could have much more appealing problems. That may be an idiotic reason, 
but we often do things for idiotic reasons with the result that we get where we wanted to go all along. So this worked for me, and that's because I made a huge attitude change. I decided I had to find a way to write. In other words, I had to make time to write. So many people tell you that. And then you look at your life and say, there's no way. I can't do it. Well, I was pretty feeling like I couldn't do it either, but I was pretty desperate too. So what I did was I switched jobs, again, to another horrible one that made me sick. But it was for only a few days a week, which meant I had finally enough more time, and that was when I started writing the first novel, which Melody was telling you about, called Masquerade. It took me four years of research and writing it because I didn't, wasn't able to work on it full time, and I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and at the same time, I was still raising a family, running a home, earning a living at a day job, and maintaining my marriage. But if I could do it, it's probably you can too. It isn't superhuman, it just feels like it. <laughs> so that leads me to number two in our surefire, time-tested rules for writing success. Get realistic. Let's talk about some tough facts that I wish someone had. Well, actually, you know something? I did learn these facts here at the Old Writers Conference, and they have proved to be true over the years. Number one, from the moment a writer makes the commitment to publish with a traditional New York publisher, the average amount of time it seems to take is 10 years. Take a deep breath. Uh, let's look at it this way. We, are, we live in a highly literate society. People generally think, well, if I can read, I can certainly write. How many people do you know say, if I only had the time, I'd be writing a book? They don't have a clue. And then we see movies where somebody writes a book, it's sold, it's instantly successful, they, make a, they become rich, they become famous, they become literary lions. It doesn't work like that for anyone, not even Truman Capote. He slaved for years teaching himself how to write and going to writers classes and so forth. Nobody does this without the work that comes along. But then you get to be an instant success 10 years later. <laughs> and I love, uh, I really enjoyed uh, Rufy Thorpe's speech last night. It was fabulous. And she mentioned last night uh, that the average number of book length manuscripts a writer completes before editing or before selling his or her first is three. In other words, the fourth book is often the one that finally sells to New York. And that's been my experience too and what I have witnessed. I have a friend, um, Steve Barry, who is now a number one New York Times best-selling um, historical thriller writer. He writes contemporary novels with a great deal of history in them. He had seven unpublished books, but he never stopped. It took him more than 10 years, but he never stopped. He wanted it. He kept at it. We absorb failure, and then we move on. We shake it off. And uh, so those two things were very important for me to know because it gave me a chance to back off. I don't have to do this in three years. I can, I can learn. I don't have to be an instant success. And that's what I'm trying to give you is a moment to take some of the pressure off and just work to be a very fine writer. Because if you do that, you're going to have success. One way or another, it will happen to you. Since 
since you're here, that tells me writing means a lot to you. So let me share one of my favorite sayings. Treat your writing with the same respect and commitment you would a great job or a love affair. Think about how much a wonderful love affair means to you. Think about the time you invest, the thought you invest. Writing can be your, one of your best love affairs ever. And it will only make you a better writer to feel that strongly about it. So if you have that in you, feel it, enjoy it. It doesn't matter whether your goal is to publish in New York, to publish in a small press, to self-publish, or to never publish at all. What matters is that you know your goal is honorable and it's valuable because you are valuable. To do something that brings you joy is the greatest success of all. There's no failure in that ever. Okay, in our surefire <laughs> time-tested rules for writing success, we've done point number one, examine your attitude, point number two, get realistic, and now we're at number three. Listen to yourself. You know everything you need to know, and don't let anybody tell you different. You do. Why do we become writers? One reason, I think, is that we all fall in love with words. We understand there are subtleties in meaning to each word. We know that words can make people cry or make them laugh. We know that stringing words together in the right way can result in a story that can open the world to readers, give them, the new, ex give them new experiences, and let them know that it's all right to love and to be in love to be courageous, to have an adventure, to be vulnerable. That's power. Words are powerful, and as writers, you are powerful people. But words can also be a challenge. We have a little fun here for a moment. Some folks are intimidated by writing because of grammar. To relieve your stress, here are the four rules for using words correctly. Put a smile on your face here and listen. Number one, never use a big word when substituting a diminutive one will suffice. <laughs> Number two, don't use no double negatives. <laughs> Number three, verbs has to agree with their subjects. <laughs> and number four, avoid cliches like the plague. Their old hat. Okay, now I have a question for you. How many have you have been told you can't write? Is there anybody here besides me? Thank you, two. I was told, many times, me too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I was told that in no uncertain terms. <laughs> these are these sweet moments in life. <laughs> During a city college fiction workshop a gazillion years ago, Santa Barbara City College, that I was a lousy writer. I sucked. I was terribly upset. I was really, really upset and worried. I had to decide whether they were right. There were three of them. They were fellow students in my class. They were adults. They were older than me. And they'd been in the class for several years while I, I just joined it. Did I believe that I was a terrible, no-talent writer? After I decided not to slip my wrist, because that became an option, I examined the evidence. 
The three were writing friends. They wrote similar things. It seemed to me they might have a narrow view of what was good writing. Possible. Still, maybe I wasn't a good writer. Maybe I really wasn't. I remember running on the hills behind my house in those days. I jogged a lot. And every time my foot hit the dirt, I'd say, I won't quit. I won't quit. I won't quit. I won't quit. Because I was so discouraged that three people in that class told me I couldn't write. Finally, after wrestling with the question for several days, I decided, what the hell? <laughs> you know, you got to work through the emotions, and then your brain kind of kicks in. It didn't matter. Maybe I was lousy. And maybe I'd always be lousy. But there was some place deep inside me, at that time I called it my core, that told me I could write and that I'd get better and better if I just kept at it. I was lucky. I grew up in a family of readers. But perhaps most important to me was my mother and my grandmother. They could go to the bank, they could go to the grocery store, they could go to the florist, they would come home, and they would sit at the uh, in the kitchen drinking coffee, I don't know how many gallons of coffee those two women drank, and they would, what they called, gossip. But what you know what they were doing? They were telling stories. Gossip is a nasty word. What it really means, their people are storytellers. There's bad gossip that's cruel and mean. You should never do it. But then there's the storytelling. Uh, you know, Mrs. Jones is going to a trip to Colorado. Her mother's sick, but they think she's going to be okay, and she's, but she's going to go just to make sure. I mean, that's a nice story. Gossip, no. It's a story. So I, I had that background already. But at the same time, I grew up in a family of secrets. You know, that place in the living room where there's just this sort of dark shadow that nobody ever talks about. That was, that was part of my life as a young person. And, and that's how I began to understand the power of what was known but unsaid. Secrets. So I started out writing short stories, but I didn't know what they were. It was uh, after the science fiction debacle. <laughs> I just, something happened, and I, and I think it was, it was triggered by these three people who told me I couldn't write. And it was that what the hell attitude and something that Rufy was talking about last night, too. I just let her rip. And I was writing these stories that were very intimate. They were very small, small, little short stories in the sense that they were short and they were little. <laughs> and intimate. And uh, they weren't necessarily about me, but they were about me, that kind of thing. I didn't know what they were, but it was a wonderful teacher here at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, Fran Halpern, who told me they were literary. I said, they are? <laughs> wow. So I went on and I published quite a, you know, quite a few of them. And, but at the same time, I was going through a divorce. And I had two wonderful children to feed. But I was being paid by journals in copies. And paper is not a food group. So I, I, and at the same, uh, meanwhile, during all of this mishugana that was going on, along comes Dennis Linz, my new boyfriend. And he was offered a contract to write Nick Carter's. Now, Nick Carter's are kind of like the scum of the earth. Um, they're male pulp fiction. Um, a lot of people will never admit, uh, admit that they've ever written them, but believe me, a lot of people have. Martin Cruz Smith has written them. You'd be amazed by the number of people who wrote them in the old days because we needed to make money. And I needed to make money, and I needed to learn. I needed to learn to write even bigger and better stuff. So 
he asked me if I could write them because he knew I needed the money. So of course I lied. <laughs> I said, sure, I can do that. I had no idea. Um, but, I, but I actually managed, but then I had Dennis, you know, and, and he was so great about helping me learn to outline, and he would edit me, and literally, for me, the way I learned to have somebody sit there with the manuscript who knew what they were doing, the problem was he really did teach me well, and then after a while we started arguing about it. <laughs> but those are the only arguments we ever had was always about writing, which is another story. Okay, so my attitude was that writing the literary short, short stories at the same time I'm writing male pulp fiction was a deal. You know, I'm, I'm getting this great experience. I really love the two forms. Um, and later on, when I reached the point where I could do Masquerade, I'd been to Breadloaf, I'd been here, I'd been, a, I said, why in God's name does this have to be commercial fiction and this have to be literary fiction? Why can't we do both and put it in one ball? Why can't I write in a form that I find intensely satisfying because I love history, I love government, politics, I love culture, I love exotic places, going places in my brain. Why can't I do it all? Why can't I write? international political novels or international spy thrillers. There are a lot of different names for it. So that, was, that became my goal. I finally, after all these years of writing, I wrote the Three Investigators Kids series. Dennis and I, uh, that was after we were married, uh, wrote Mac Bolan's, you know. <laughs> I, I wrote the outline for the Mac Bolan and submitted it, and they liked it, and they gave us a check. I wrote half of it. And then uh, I was editor of Santa Barbara Magazine at the time, and the magazine went into production, so I, I wasn't going to make the deadline. So we had a hot tub functioning at that point. So I took Dennis out to the hot tub, and I put him in the hot tub, and I said, darling, I got bad news for you. <laughs> I don't have time to finish the book. He literally picked up that outline and wrote, based on the outline, the second half of the book. I don't think he read the first half. <laughs> you know, we were working writers. And to me, this was a phenomenal education. I was so grateful for it. And then after, this is where Masquerade and my current career came from, was all these terrific experiences. So in the 1990s is when I reached the point that I was ready to write my own books under my own name. And that's when I chose spy thrillers. The choice makes perfect sense now, I think, to you perhaps, doesn't it? Why I would want to combine all these things. And then there's this wonderful quote from uh, Robert Gates, who was, for a time, the director of the CIA and, of course, then became a head of the Department of Defense. And what he said was, when a spy smells flowers, he looks around for a coffin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Doesn't that grab your imagination? Don't you want to write about that? She's like, whoa. <laughs> okay. So in our surefire, Time-tested rules for writing success. Point number one, examine your attitude. Number two, get realistic. Three, listen to yourself. You know everything you need to know. And now, number four, perseverance. You know, we've been talking about that, or I've been talking about it. You've been patiently listening all along. So let's pause for a moment to remember another reason we fall in love with reading and writing, and that's voice. Voice is critical in both fiction and nonfiction. As an author, you can reveal a great deal about character by the way he or she talks. 
by their word choices and by their tone, both in talking and thinking. So just for fun, I'm going to give you some examples of the various ways characters might answer the same question. The question is, why did the chicken cross the road? We don't need to be sophisticated to do this, okay? And I need your help. Why did, come on, why did the chicken cross the road? Captain James T. Kirk. To boldly go where no chicken has gone before. <laughs> Number two. Why did, come on, why did the chicken cross the road? Bill Gates. I have just released eChicken 2016, which will not only cross roads, file your important documents, and balance your checkbook. It will lay eggs. <laughs> Tried Windows 10 lately? <laughs> Number three, why did the chicken cross the road? Sigmund Freud. The fact that you are at all concerned that the chicken crossed the road reveals your underlying sexual insecurity. <laughs> the last one. Why did the chicken cross the road? Ernest Hemingway. To die. <laughs> Aren't those great examples of voice and dialogue? <laughs> no wonder we like to read and to write. Now, perseverance. Back in the early 1990s when I was working on Masquerade, I went through a series of discouraging events. I, it took me three years to write the first draft, and you know why, I've explained that. My agent at the time, when I finished it, liked it, she sent it out to more than 30 editors. And it was rejected by all of them. I kept saying, what's wrong with this book? Tell me so I can fix it, because I was so close to it myself that I could not see it. But my agent was no help. She didn't know what was wrong with it. So I took it away from her. You know, everybody was saying, start another book, do another book. And for some writers, that's right. But my core was telling me I had a great book here. I just didn't, there was something wrong. It should have sold. And I couldn't figure it out. So I, but I took it away. And I actually, um, several people had read it. And, and every, I, I would pick a piece out of one, and then maybe over there. And it started to make sense to me that I had started it too soon. You know that old story for uh, one of the things that will help with suspense is you start your book as close to the end as you can? And that's what I needed to do. So I cut 150 pages out of the front of the book. <laughs> you understand. <laughs> It was a big owl. Um, and I retitled it. And meanwhile, um, some of our friends, Brian and Bina Garfield, Brian wrote um, Death Wish and Hopscotch. He's still alive, but he hasn't published in a long time. He was a very fine writer. He'd heard me talk about the book, and he said, would you mind if I read it? And I said, oh my god, please. And he read it. He and, and Bina, and they were passing it back and forth as they were flying. It was in manuscript form. And he said, may I send you to my agent? And that agent was Henry Morrison, one of the big ones in New York. And Henry read it, and he really liked it too. So um, he sent it as an exclusive to uh, Elaine Costner, who was the head of um, yeah, and thank you. <laughs> and um, and, and uh, so Henry, and he, she had a deadline. So uh, the, the, the day of her deadline, 
the, her assistant, I met him later, it was funny, called Henry and said she loves the book, she wants to buy the book, she'll call tomorrow and make an offer. And Henry's going, yeah, you know, money, <laughs> I've done it, you know, I'm starting a new writer, hooray, hooray. And uh, so the next morning, she was back in the office and she called him and she said, Henry, I love this book, I want to publish it, but no woman could have written it. This is the good old, bad old days. I never, I didn't tell you the reason I was writing Nick Carr's with Dennis getting the contract was because they wouldn't give a contract to a woman in those days. They had 10 years earlier, but when I came along, you know, it was a closed door again. So anyway, Henry takes it back and he looks at it and he says, you know, Gail, I think you can make it better. So I went through it and he gave me a wonderful idea which I have never stopped using, which is to write what I call, I call it chaptering. Uh, and you know, I can have a hundred chapters in a book, but every chapter has a, a number, it has how many pages in it, it has where it takes place, and if it's pertinent, the time of day and the day. And it's just one or two sentences. So I have the entire book in like 10 to 20 pages, single space. And then he, and then he said, go through and use color highlighter. So you can see, because he says, I think there are repetitions in here. And he said some other things that made sense. So I went through, and I did that. And he said, the other thing he said was, you know, there's something missing. It doesn't hang quite together. So I, I said, he said, look, I can sell this book right now. It is a good book. But I can't get you big money. I can't get you a big push. If you're willing to gamble and go back and rewrite again, let's, then let's see where we are. Maybe we can do something with it. So I said, sure, I'll gamble. You know, oh. <laughs> And uh, so I went back and I spent four months. I was looking for that one big idea that would pull the whole book together. And then George Soros broke the Bank of England. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a huge story. And I said, well, I'm not gonna break the Bank of England. George Soros already did it. I'm gonna break the Bank of France. And that became the single plot line that held the whole book together. So I cut out the last 150 pages <laughs> and, uh, and introduced the new plot line, gave it a, a new ending, and sent it to Henry. And he turned around and sold it to Steve Fish, not Fishers. Thank you, thank God I've got some help over there. Steve Rubin, um, who was the president of Doubleday, and he was gonna do for it what he had done for John Grisham in the firm. He loved the book, he really thought it was dynamite. And uh, the, the woman who was the head of publicity became my publicist. They were gonna have a big auction. They were gonna do all these great things for the book. And I'm going, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. There's gonna be something that's wrong because this is too good to be true, right? Well, guess what? <laughs> Steve Rubin got promoted and sent over to London. They brought in a woman whose name she'll, you don't need to know. I think I've repressed it anyway. I may have made her, used her name as a villain in another book, I don't know. Anyway, she came in and she was the type of woman, she did a lot of decorating of her office and, and she really kind of got rid of all the new books that Steve had in the pipeline. Steve was so enormously successful, I think she was afraid to follow. 
So there went my auction. There I, I came, I got a phone call one day. Oh, I'm your new publicist. She sounds like she's 12 years old. My publicist had left. The, the uh, editors, the great editors, a lot of them were leaving. It was just a disaster. And they didn't, the, they didn't have an auction. They put my hardcover in with a bunch of other hardcovers in a, in a uh, cardboard box and sent it to the paperback houses because in those days, Doubleday was strictly hardcover. And the most amazing thing happened. Phyllis Gran at uh, Penguin, huh? What? Yeah, thank you. I was going to say Penguin Putnam, isn't that good enough? <laughs> it wasn't then? It wasn't? Okay. I'm glad. See, I told you I'm old. <laughs> the memory sucks. Anyway, um, she loved it. She absolutely loved it. She's, and so they, in those days, they had big sales meetings, national sales meetings, apparently, where all of the sales. And the, the rep up in San Francisco told me this story. He said, when, when she pounds her fists in New York, we feel it all the way to California. She was an amazing um, editor and publisher. So, uh, and she apparently stood up at the meeting and peeled the uh, cover off uh, the hardcover, and she said, this cover sucks. They screwed it up from left to right. We're going to make this into a New York Times bestseller. And she did. Yes. <laughs> and I got a lot of reviews. Some of them were very kind. Others were, they sort of complained that I was a woman and I really shouldn't be writing this. I mean, the things that happened were really, now, should I have quit? Should you quit? Right. That's called perseverance. <laughs> Here are three writerly sayings that might help you. As you assess your seriousness of your persistence, writing is 10% inspiration, but 90% perspiration. You may have heard that. It's a very important thing to remember. Number two, books aren't written. They are rewritten. And number three, if you're not getting rejected, you're not trying hard enough. You, that's, that's us and car salesmen, you know, used car, used car salesmen, you know, we're not trying. Um, I, I could go on and on and talk some more about some of the things that you can do to make yourself successful, but honestly, I think that I've covered a lot of the psychological things that we do to ourselves to keep ourselves from doing the work that is so necessary to achieve the... The, the, our potential as writers. So I let me open, the, uh, and, and Melody did me the favor of talking about my book, so I don't even have to describe the assassins to you, except I gotta tell you one story, okay, one story, one story. And that is, uh, one of the things that got me rocking and rolling on the assassins was when uh, we invaded Iraq, one of our prime goals was to get our hands on Saddam Hussein's fortune, as you know. He was an assassin, he was a robber. Um, he had, they, uh, the State Department estimated 40 to $70 billion in fortune. And we were planning to use that money to help rebuild Iraq and then to finance our time there. But in all the years since, we have only recovered a couple billion. Now that's a lot of money, but there's a lot of money still out there. This has become one of, well, the, it's considered the greatest treasure hunt since uh, looking, are looking for Nazi gold after World War II. 
I was utterly fascinated. I wanted to find that money. Don't you want to find that money? <laughs> so that is the theme that runs through the entire book. And at the end, the six assassins, um, they're pitted against each other while Judd and Eva carry the story. At the end, it's revealed, in my mind, where that money is. So now let me ask you, what can I, oh, and I wanted to say one more thing. I'm going to be teaching a class tomorrow morning, um, a workshop. Uh, you know, please come, and uh, I'm, I'm, what I want to do is talk to you about your books in the class, besides talking about plotting and story and characterization. I think it would be really interesting for you to tell me about your books and where, where your problems are. Maybe we can assess things. Now, it depends on how big the class is, how many we can do. Okay, now. Do you have questions for me? Now is your time. Take your best shot. Is what do you read? What do I read? I read a tremendous amount of uh, nonfiction. Uh, I read fiction primarily to give jacket blurbs. I don't. Uh, I will read people in my field. One of the things I discovered about myself is I'm a mimic. And so I'm usually writing. If I'm not writing, I can be reading. Uh, so you, if, you're probably, if you're asking me uh, for favorite books in my field, I, I really enjoy uh, David Baldacci, who's a friend of mine. I love Nelson DeMille. Um, I go back to the classics, of course, all the time. <sighs> Let me see. Um, there's not very many people who are really writing the kind of books that I write because mine are kind of old-fashioned. They're, they're sprawling stories, you know, with everybody. It's like, it's like a, a saga in the Old West or something, where you, but it's always condensed. And I, I have this thing about I really want my main characters, because I put them through such hell, to have a happy ending. And they do, but the situation is always not always resolved. It often will continue because that's that's what you know what real life is. It, these that considering the political situations that we are all living in these days, they do continue in one way or another. Now there was a lady back there. Oh, hello, Kathleen. <laughs> this has been so wonderful. I've seen so many old friends. Uh, basically. Um, I write all day, and life interrupts writing. Uh, my husband, John, uh, does a lot of writing, too. He's, still, he's a retired judge, so he represents some clients. But he also does fiction, and he writes uh, scholarly articles. So uh, he usually makes breakfast, and we go separate after that to go read and catch up. on. I read a tremendous amount of, of news. I think I take two or three newspapers a day and two or three news magazines a week. You know, I just have a lot of stuff that's going in my brain all the time. And uh, I usually make lunch, and uh, we, we stop for doctor's appointments. <laughs> and we both try to work out. John's a, a bike rider. Uh, I like uh, my exercise tapes. And uh, then we have dinner, and we will often watch a Netflix movie. One of the things that's happened to me as I've aged is I used to work until 10 o'clock at night easily. I can't do it anymore. I just don't have the ability to stay uh, smart enough. My best hours are in the morning. I, I, I miss those late night hours because I often got the best of my work done, but I can't do it anymore. Anyone else? What's your next book? Ah, <laughs> thank you, good man.
<laughs> uh, at this point, it's called uh, The Choir Master. And uh, it's about, it's set in Moscow because I have become obsessed with Moscow and obsessed with Putin and the politics there. It's the, the Byzantine quality of it. It makes our bureaucracy, you know, look like kindergarten. It, the complex, it's just such a rich field and I'm just really angry about it all. So what the hell, I'm writing about it. You keep telling me that. Are you planning something that we should know about, Grace? <laughs> It is. It, nobody's ever asked me that, but um, I, I don't. I don't really know because uh, I, the story is such a whole cloth to me. I, I have upon a. I remember years ago here uh, at the conference. Um, who wrote the thorn, thorn birds? Mary. Who? And uh, she was talking about the Thornbirds and how she had, I, I think it was an uncle or a son who was, she had too many characters, so she had to get rid of somebody, so she sent them off to prison for several years. <laughs> and every once in a while, I just have too many characters. <laughs> and I have to bump them off. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, I'm very careful about that because I, I'm very, I'm kind of upset by the cavalier attitude of some of my colleagues. Um, I, I don't believe in vigilanteism. I really don't. Uh, and so what I've tried to do is sort of write, a, believe it or not, a moral book. Uh, I don't want my heroes going around willy-nilly killing people just because they can and because it's justice. Uh, I like the complexity of a person who struggles with right and wrong. So I usually have at least one character who's addressing this. I have ongoing themes in all of my books. And inevitably, uh, one of them is the moral quandary of somebody capable of killing and whether they actually do it or not to, quote, solve the problem. Uh, and, I, and after a while, I be, when I began to see that, I thought, oh gosh, I gotta quit doing it. And then I couldn't get away from it. Because violence is um, an act that's not like bread and butter. You know, it's not like you know, putting some butter on a piece of bread. Violence is not like a table or a bottle of water. It's a ferocious, anti-human act that infects all of us whether it happens down the block or across the city or across the continent, because it impacts our culture. And our culture is the Petri dish in which we live. So to me, um, and I'm not a, uh, a pacifist in the sense that I wouldn't fight back. I would. And I would kill if I had to, to defend myself or defend somebody I love. But it was defense. And so I find myself, in all of my books, wrestling with that. I also find myself, in all of my books, wrestling with relationships. 
And I have been accused of, because here we go, you know, it's the sexist society in which we live, of writing uh, romantic thrillers. Because some people really want my books to be romance books. I tried to write romance. I tried. Rufy, I didn't have it in me. I tried. I had to go home to violence, you know. <laughs> Um, and I, if I could, my life would have been so much easier. If I'd been writing romance novels, I would have fit in. I mean, I, I was so, I got so frustrated recently, and I won't even tell you what happened, but it was yet one more of those things, that I sat down and I figured, okay, who do I know? Who are the women who are writing in my field? I could, and publishing, traditionally. I could come up with eight. That's crap. That's awful. You know, it was one of the things I had hoped to do because I loved Helen McInnes. Nobody looked down on her. You know, she was respected. Nobody accused her of all these bizarre things that we get accused of. So what we've done, um, I contacted each of the women. Most of them I'd given jacket blurbs to over the years. And uh, we, we have formed our own blog. It's called Rogue Women Writers. And we, <laughs> and, yes, and we write about international stuff. And we write about where we research. You know, the the you know I was I, was, I wrote about Marrakesh, which is one of the places that appears in um, I love exotic places in the Assassins. Uh, we and one of the women is ex CIA. Another woman was the top female in the White House for many years under the Reagan administration. Another woman had spent her entire life trotting the globe because she lived in a diplomat's family. These women are extraordinarily. Um, uh, talented and come with great backgrounds. I had uh, top secret sec uh, security clearance when I was an editor at a think tank. You know, we've all got something, we bring it to the table. And we, it's amazing how quickly the darn thing has grown. So if you're, uh, I'll, I've got some bookmarks, I'll try to put them downstairs, but if you're interested, go to roguewomenwriters.com Rogue and we're doing a blog four times a week. Yes, ma'am. Oh yeah, I got a whole workshop on that. How do, how do I create suspense? I'll give you one tip. At the beginning of every scene, ask yourself what that main character wants, and then say it. And the, the example that I use is from Masquerade, because I, you know, it's easier, because I keep using the same examples, uh, where I have an assassin going into a bar in Paris, and he's there because he wants to steal a, a van because he needs another, he needs new wheels. Um, and when I first wrote that scene, it's a nice scene, you know, it's like three, four pages, not big. I didn't put that. I thought it would be more suspenseful for the reader to slowly understand why that guy was there. And then I, then somehow I had an epiphany and I realized, no, if the reader knows why he's there, then the reader is saying, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? That's a very simple way of increasing your suspense. And actually, if you set the question up early in the book, the whole book can be carried on that question. And, when, and what I did in The Assassins, and if you read it, you'll see, because it's subtle, is the first question in the book is, what has happened to all that money of Saddam Hussein? Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>